1: Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming back Marie Matsuki Mockett. Marie was born to an American father and a Japanese mother. Her memoir, Where the Dead Pause and the Japanese Say Goodbye, which we talked about when she was here last, examines grief against the backdrop of the 2011 Great East Earthquake in Japan and was a finalist for the 2016 Penn Open Book Award, Indie's Choice Best Book for Nonfiction, and the Northern California Book Award for Creative Nonfiction. Her new work, American Harvest, God, Country, and Farming in the Heartland from Grey Wolf, follows her journey through seven heartland states in the company of evangelical Christian harvesters and examines the role of GMOs, God, agriculture, and race in society. With with what I can verify is exquisite lyricism and humanity, this astonishing book attempts to reconcile competing ideas about our national story so we can all find a way home. American Harvest was a finalist for the Lucas Prize, awarded by Columbia and Harvard University's Schools of Journalism. Welcome back, Maria. I'm so happy to have you.
2: Oh, thank you, Cheryl. It's my great pleasure to be here. And as you know, I was just so, so happy when you asked me to come back on your show. So I thank you for having me as a guest.
1: Absolutely. And I just, um, the book is beautiful. And also in the light of what we're all living through, sheltering in place, uh, you and I in two different places in California, it just feels so timely to take up the subject of different ways that people look at our lives as Americans and um, how you tried to bring some understanding to that.
2: It's really eerie actually, how those themes have kind of become magnified by this disaster that we're going through um, via the pandemic. And then of course, a a portion of our, our national conversation does uh, center around the food supply, and I had no way of knowing that that was going to happen when I first started investigating this project, um, and certainly some people thought it was a very strange thing for me to be writing about, but, you know, here we are thinking about how we get our food, can we get our food, who?
1: You know, in that um, light, in, the, in that light, I pulled out a little quote from the book that when I read it, just everything in me kind of sank to the ground. Uh, here it goes the men the men who are these harvesters that you're traveling with indulge in a recurring fantasy they wonder what will happen if the satellites go out they envision the people in the city rendered helpless without a network connecting their phones to services and money the city people would not know what to do they would be left with machines that no one could operate the city people cannot hunt and they cannot farm and they would soon go hungry won't take long for them to show up and take your food, Eric, Amos says one night <laughs> when we are eating dinner. At, at Eric's home in Pennsylvania, there's a series of large grain bins filled with corn, wheat, and soybeans. Eric built the bins for himself so he could store his own crops and opt to sell his harvest when the commodities prices go up. This is this is cheaper than keeping grain at the local cooperative. We would feed the people, Eric says. He's eating and chewing, and after a moment, he puts down his fork. We'd have a soup kitchen. We could do it. Everyone laughs. I'm serious, he thunders. The church would help. The people would line up. They'd try to steal. No, Eric insists. It would work out and would be fine. We would take care of it. Usually when the scenarios discussed, the boys use it to frame how in a catastrophe their knowledge would become vital. The fantasy is not a chance to think through how people how through how to help people, but a chance to discuss how at last the city people would see them and understand that they drivers of trucks and fixers of igniter coils are important, valuable. I, I, I just was so stunned when I read that.
2: Isn't that weird? I wrote that in 2017. Yeah. And that that passage. I mean, I found those conversations fascinating. And I, in as much as I was trying to to listen to everything around me with, um, you know, with with openness, there was still a part of me that was skeptical. <laughs> you know, like sure. what kind of a catastrophe? I mean, it'll be like a localized catastrophe, but not not a global catastrophe like that, you know. And here we are. So I've I've continuously have my comeuppance, even though I think, even though I tried to write this book, you know, with compassion and and openness. I mean, here I am getting my, my comeuppance too. So it's very humbling.
1: My, my wife, uh, my wife now, not my first wife who, who died. My wife now was a systems engineer. She's retired now, but she's been saying since I, since I met her, like almost 25 years ago, 22 or three, um the the next big thing will be um cyber which is what they're talking mm. about in a way a cyber attack um but mm-hmm. this is so much more global isn't it what we're going through right now
2: yeah it's extraordinary i mean there's no place to go you know there, there isn't there isn't a place to run to where we would be able to get away from, from the pandemic and from what is happening. I mean, that's the insidious nature of a virus. It can travel everywhere uh, mm-hmm. undetected and it's tiny and highly, highly transportable. So it's, um, uh, yeah, it's, a, it's something that's affected everybody on the planet really very quickly.
1: And then the other, um, so that's the city and, and country, you know, kind of divide between us there are so many divides that we could talk about. But the other one that really, to me, runs deep in your book is the divide of race. Mm-hmm. And given that, um, I guess I, I i didn't count the numbers before this, but I think half of my nuclear family, my wife, my children, my grandchildren, about half are people of color. Mm-hmm. And um, so although I'm not a person of color, um, marginalized as a lesbian, but it's not the same thing, of course. Um, uh, you know, I'm next to some of the things you talk about in the book that are so deeply impactful. Um, I hear them talked about a lot, you know, by members of my my family. And, and at the same time, you went back to a very familiar place because your father came from a farm and you you actually have land in that. And that just seemed such a interesting intersection. Can you talk about that a little bit?
2: Sure. My father was American. He was was actually born in California, but moved back to Nebraska with his family when he was seven. Um, But uh, American through and through, grew up in Nebraska, wanted to become an opera singer, and so left Nebraska for Vienna, Austria which is where he met my mother, who is from Japan, and they were both uh, opera students and got married and ended up in the United States in California. But the American family, my father's family, never got rid of farm. I think there are actually a lot of Americans and probably list- people listening to this program who have family members who owned farmland because it is how a lot of people um, entered into the United States and then and then crossed the continent to settle in the West. Um, but my fa- most people's families have, have sold the farms you know, and moved to cities or, or moved to more populated areas. And my family kept the farm in Nebraska, even though everybody lived in a big and had a, a quote unquote city job. So I was really very comfortable going to the farm. I loved it. My grandmother, my father's mother, lived in Nebraska uh, until the late 80s. She was one of my favorite people, a great reader, a great traveler, a wonderful person, a real lady, we would say, um, and a a very important force in my early life. And I had a wonderful time in Nebraska. But I think, you know, in some ways, I was sort of shielded from the fact that outside of the context of my family, I I stood out in farmland. and I'm not unfamiliar with that feeling because when I would go to Japan with my mother, I'm of mixed race and I would go to Japan, I also didn't exactly blend in particularly well. And when I was with her, there was sort of this Japanese force field around me. But when I was traveling by myself, I had you know, a slightly different experience and a different feeling. Um, so there's a parallel to, to what I experienced going through the Great Plains. But I think the piece that I didn't expect I really needed to investigate the history of the, the settling, what we call the settling of the United States, and how, how the different states entered into the Union, um, what the history was, and, and how that continues to impact us today. And I mean, I grew up in California, and I had a pretty good education, uh, but I really didn't understand fully, which is not to imply that I understand fully now, but I didn't understand as much then for at the, at the trip. Um, as I do know, um, how our country was pieced together, and how we've inherited the, some of the, the conflicts that went into, you know, acquiring the land and adding them to the union. Um, and I had to kind of confront that because everywhere I went, people asked people, well, what are you question, but unlike, you know, New York City, where that's an open question, or perhaps San Francisco, where people assume that I must be part Asian, what was in the Great Plains people thought I must be Native American and mm-hmm. mistook me for, Native. and in the beginning that was something I just sort of thought, oh, it's that thing where I'm being mistaken for being something else. But it ended up having the, having the effect of really making me have to sit a little bit more with the history um, of who were indigenous to our country, uh, and and you know, and what that what that meant. Um, somebody asked me recently what one of the biggest lessons was that I learned from. Writing this book, and I said, Well, the United States is capable of feeding itself. It does actually produce enough calories that if we distribute the food, people do not have to go hungry. This isn't true of very many countries in the world. <laughs> and as I've come to realize this, I thought, Oh, yes, so of course the founding fathers came here and saw an extraordinary resource and wanted it. Because, I mean, we, we talk about the gold rush and we talk about timber. And all of that is true, but just the very basic level of being able to produce enough food, you know, it was an amazing experience for people coming in to see the land and then, and then want to have it for themselves. And of course, that has had um, tremendous ramifications. But I, I really had to kind of look at that larger picture uh, in a more intense way than I had intended to.
0: Mm.
1: And then uh, I, I was mentioning to you before we came on that I participated in a Sundance for a long time. And I would say it was it was um, open, obviously, to people who aren't Native, otherwise I wouldn't have been Mm -hmm. there and a part of it. But Mm -hmm. there were um, many, many Native people and that the damage to that community is still like it is in, in, you know, African-American communities around the legacy of that still extremely raw and impactful in terms of people's oh, actual lives.
2: Absolutely.
0: Yes. You
2: know, one wants to be um, sensitive in, in how one writes about that because it's not my story or my experience. And so uh, at the same time, I didn't... So the book is structured around a, a road trip, really, where we begin cutting wheat in Texas, which is where wheat first ripens. And then we move up to Oklahoma and then move up to Canada, um, and then end up in Idaho, which is extraordinary farmland. And we we live in trailers. And toward the end, we're living in the RV park of the Shoshone-Bannock Indian Reservation uh, on the RV park that is adjacent to a casino. And go out every morning to cut wheat on ground that is mostly owned by the tribes, but which is farmed by the Mormon settlers. So, you know, that's an incredible intersection of American history there. So, on the surface, there we are cutting wheat, but underneath there's all of this storytelling um, that is going on. And it was, it felt irresponsible to just say, oh, now we're in Idaho cutting wheat in Idaho, you know? Yeah, that it wouldn't have been honest if I hadn't said everything to you. Um, and then if you put me in the middle of it, and people think that I'm a Native American, it really it was a, it was a really singular experience for me. There's something and, and very complicated.
1: Complicated,
2: yes. You know, I meant multi-layered. I mean, they're wonderful people. I mean, just and and. There, there were wonderful farmers I met, um, there's a, a, a woman in the book who I write about, um, who was a, a who was Mormon, who, who was born on the reservation, of course, but she's white, um, but that is her home. Um, you know, what a position to be in. And she's a very hardworking, excellent farmer, was very, very generous to me, I'm willing to talk through a whole number of subjects. Um so yeah, it forms, and that's kind of where the, <laughs> I think, uh, right, and it's
1: there's something that to me kind of <laughs> uh, pulls together where the kind of courage that you have, Marie, and it's and it's just a couple of lines out of the book that just pulled at me. Uh, I know what the rules are when a dark thing flies out. You don't run and hide like a child. The rule is that you must go and see what the dark thing is. I think you have a particular talent for that because I've thought a lot about um, writing about race as as a um, as a white person, mm-hmm. and it's and it's. Uh, Uh, writing about race as anybody takes a lot of courage to write about it personally the way that you did and I just want to really appreciate you for that
2: well thank you I think it's I think it's really hard and I haven't really written directly about race um, or or, the experience of race and I did not write this book intending to write about race Uh, and I still you know I still have a lot of discomfort around it it's funny though I was talking to a friend of mine about this subject the other day uh he is black and he said he he said well if you don't want to talk about race if you don't you're leaving that work you know to brown and black skin people and i said well that's not what i mean i don't mean it's hard so i don't want to have to do it i'm i'm familiar with that attitude it's more i think for me uh i you know i read kathy hong's wonderful a collection of essays Minor Feelings which, which she writes a lot about the Asian American experience in America and I, so many of the things that she names I feel but even then I remember reading this feeling like but I'm only 50% Asian so maybe I have minor minor feelings or oh. you know I, I can't <laughs> complain because I'm a person of such privilege and so that's, that's really the, for me the, where the discomfort comes in where I think you know um, that's what makes it hard to talk about for me. And,
1: and yet it's, it's so uh, I was thinking about the lair where you go to, I don't know if there was a process by which your Nebraska family came to accept your father, marrying someone from another culture or, you know, I don't know about that. But I know that you felt very embraced. Uh, that juxtaposition with um some of the things that came up on the trip that i guess i would call not everybody of course everyone was different but some people were suspicious and outsiderish and you know well uh, not- you know
2: about as far as my family goes my american family was by and large really excited about my mother joining the family and very open to her and I have found these letters that my grandmother wrote about my mother she just adored my mother she thought my mother was wonderful the resistance to the marriage (laughs) came from the japanese side so that has always been a a hugely instructive lesson on how human beings are fallible no matter where they are Mm. Uh, and and you know you can find acceptance where you quote unquote least expect it, you may be rejected when you think you're being accepted. I mean, it's, you know, it's a far more complicated, complex game sure. of gaslighting than, than one thinks. Um, and then in the case of traveling with the harvesters, I never felt comfortable reducing any of the tensions that I felt with the crew to race because I brought so much else into our interactions mm-hmm. other than just my appearance. Like I, I don't know had I been blonde and white if my this is the this is the thing about talking about race if you're a a mixed person who's always had a foot in both worlds I I don't know that my quote-unquote white self would have had an easier time I mean we just don't know you know I don't know
1: yes Um, I want to talk about that more and so let's take a break and come back to it because it's time for our first break Listeners, you'll find links to my website, social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America. And to find Marie Matsuki Mockett, go to Mocket. that's M-O-C-K-E-T-T dot com. Be back soon.
0: Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7.
1: Be sure to like the Voice America Health and
0: Wellness channel on Facebook. You'll find great health tips from the experts. Find out more about your favorite shows and talk back to our team. Search Voice America Health or click the like button under the player today.
1: This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Marie Matsuki Makut about her book, American Harvest, God, Country, and Farming in the Heartland. And Marie, before the break, uh, you were talking about not not being able ever to know what's what, why people respond this way or that. Is it is it race? Is it different belief systems? All that. But I think that the what I noticed just observing my family and people around me is that there's always the question is it right.
2: that? Yeah it does hang over <laughs> it does hang over you it's true um,
1: so that's uh that's one thread that you experienced and then um, the the other thing was just being a city person and,
2: absolutely uh,
1: you know i'm I'm quite aware that. There was one point in my early life where um to say it in a with a little levity all the lesbians were moving to the land um.
2: <laughs> well that was smart, <laughs> smart so. that, actually was. that was a good idea
1: yeah and i i dabbled i i i tried it on a little bit but it, i'm a city girl <laughs> Right, I I can't even keep my garden really going, you know. So fortunately, I didn't do that. But it, but what really blew my mind out reading the book is how very affected my thinking is by having lived in cities my entire life. Well, I've lived in a few t- small towns when I was under six, but after that, all city living. And uh, you really illuminated for me how much that affects. My point of view uh,
2: well thank you for saying that and you know I'm the same <laughs> I am the daughter of a farmer and I even as I was and I, I was very very close to my father he passed away in 2009 um, you know I definitely one of the one of the great friends that I've that I've have had the privilege to have in my life um but even in the course of writing this book i realized <laughs> that i understood him better as a result of spending time with with so many farmers um and there's an incident for example when eric who's the really one of the lead characters in the book um is a farmer from lancaster county pennsylvania but spends a good portion of the year cutting wheat across america and he's the one i travel with and he's the one who's the lifelong Republican who's concerned in 2016 that, that his people might elect Trump, and then when that happens, he feels we need to do something to address the conflicts that, that exist across what he calls the divide, and so that's how I end up going on the road with him. But uh, I remember we took a field trip. We've had these very interesting field trips, and one of them was to Whole Foods in New York City, and he had never been before. And um, I took him around to look at the food, and, you know, he was just such a completely different specimen of human compared to everybody else in <laughs> Whole Foods and the Time Warner Center in New York City. There's everybody in their exercise gear running and to and fro, and he's in his windbreaker and his jeans, and um, I think that day, for once, he didn't have pliers on the side of his of his jeans, but he he moved with this farmer-like, calm, precision, and... Finally, he looked at me and he said, you know, everything in here, Marie, is marketing. Um, he looked, he saw the food differently. He saw that it was being presented and messaged in a way that wasn't necessarily um, an accurate representation of how the food was actually being made by farmers. Mm. Uh, and I think about that a lot and, and what it means. And I, I it makes more and more sense to me as time goes by Down to the level that when I am deciding what I'm going to cook or what I'm going to eat, I mean, that is a decision that I make in the store, right? And then I'm depending on how the food is presented and what the little sign is next to the food telling me where it came from or, you know, if (laughs) it makes me feel like I'm making a a good and healthy and special decision. Uh, And and that's not the way the farmers live. They don't go to the store to, to momentarily feel some sort of connection with the land because they're they're connected to the land all the time. So it's a very, yes. and, and that, and this difference is so deep and, uh, and and just impacts so many areas of life and so many ways of thinking. But, you know, I mean, even like if everything that I'm saying to you on this show, I could sit here and spill this all out to the farmers and they would probably think, wow, she's talking a lot, you know? a lot of words, Marie. <laughs> I, I, I just had a very vivid
1: memory. Um, my first wife grew up in Mississippi on the Gulf Coast in an extremely small town, and her family had a place to live where they had chickens and they grew, grew all their vegetables, and it wasn't a farm, but they were very connected to the land. Mm -hmm. And um, she was so reverent about food in a way that no one I know, like me, is. And so, but that didn't mean she all bought all organic in it or anything. It meant she would go to the store and this was all the way through her 10-year illness where it was very hard for her to move. She was very disabled. She would go to the store. She'd say, I'm going to go pick up some beans and she come back two hours later, like <laughs> she had formed a relationship with each individual being. Yeah. <laughs> you yes. know. Um, and the way that she related to meat was different. And I don't think she was aware of it, but it it was just she she'd grown up like there's a cost if you if you kill your chicken, you don't have your chicken anymore, and it makes it kind of important when you eat it. That's what I Absolutely. always say.
2: Absolutely, right, so then you have to use all of the parts of the chicken, and you know, exactly. there, were a couple of, there were a couple of guys that I talked to, a couple of um, guy writers, one who was living in Montana, and one who was living in Idaho, and I would periodically talk to them while I was on the road, and they, they sort of thought, you know, they, were, they were lovely, and they were supportive, and they, I think they sort of thought, well, this is interesting, here's this woman going along with this crew of men through wheat country, but they also understood the landscape that I was in. And I remember one of them writing, I think I had said, I went hunting for the first time, which is not to say that I actually hunted. It really means just that I sat. You went along? I went along, right? Nobody was ever going (laughs) to let me actually try to shoot at a pig. Um, But, you know, they they like sort of grudgingly took me along. Um, And I told, I told one of these writers that I was that I had gone from my first hunt um, and and he said you know he had so much respect for the the man that I was with he understood the world that I was in and he said they have a different operating system which I thought was mm-hmm. was <laughs> a good way to I mean it's it. you know it's technology but it is a it is a it's true I mean I remember I was in and this is in the book I was in Nebraska standing around with a couple of farmers and they were all twitching saying, oh, you know, the air just doesn't feel right. No, it doesn't feel right. But it just felt wrong all morning. And I was standing there thinking, you know, and I think of myself as a fairly sensitive human being. And I thought, what what are you feeling? And But they just, and they, but they couldn't even tell me in words. They just said, oh, it just feels wrong. And then the other one said, yeah, but it feels wrong. You know, they just knew. They had this other wiring They're... to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can only imagine that once upon a time, more of us were like that. Right. Absolutely. We didn't, uh, we didn't uh, There was so so many iPhone in the morning and say, what's the weather going to be? Okay. That means I get to wear this, you know, and then
1: there, yes, there was a scene where your cousin doesn't believe it's going to rain because the radar says it's not going to rain, but it rained yeah. it would rain. yeah. I, That really stood out.
2: Um, and oh, it was and, an extraordinary and, moment. I was looking at a field with Eric and it, it wasn't ripe. And he was telling me, do you see how it's a little green? Green and I'm looking at this field, thinking, "Well, no, it looks yellow to me." But okay, <laughs> you know, and um, and he said, "But I think it's going to be right by Saturday." You need to you need to tell your cousin to get out here. And I was struggling with the really poor internet connection to text my cousin, and he was saying to me, "The iPhone says there's zero percent chance of precipitation." You know, um, so. He didn't. He didn't think he should come because the weather forecast did not indicate that there would that there was going to be any precipitation. And of course, Eric, the farmer, turned out to be right, and it did rain. And I, you know, what exactly he was sensing that told him that this would happen, I, I don't know. But um, it's it's amazing, and I and, and it's funny because. And I feel like I know better than to do this, but every year I'll say, "So when is harvest going to be?" And Eric will say, "Harvest is when the wheat is ripe." <laughs> you know? um, I'll say, "Yeah, I know, but like approximately." Like I think he can actually tell me, <laughs> even though I know better. But it, and it has to so do you with can the plan your life life a little. here <laughs> exactly. I'm like everything else in the world. I can plan. Why can you not tell me when the weed is going to be ripe? And of course, it's because the weed is the thing that's in control, and it's a it's very We just don't live that
1: way. And it's interesting now because um, virtually all of the people I know are in a circumstance at this very moment where we cannot plan. We don't know how long this is going to go on. We don't know what it'll be like, uh, you know, when it's not going on anymore. Uh, You know, (laughs) there's... Uh, we can plan like I can. I can roughly plan about a week in advance right now. Yes, uh,
2: we live with a great deal of uncertainty. It's true.
1: Not the same type, it's of course.
2: True.
1: But that fantasy that we can plan is kind of up in the air. And I and I've noticed that people who've gone through uh, events in their lives like for instance, my wife being sick for so long and then dying or, um, uh, you know, other kind of dire circumstance who had to learn how to live with uncertainty. Uh, my subjective impression is that we're doing better in a way right now. Uh, you know, I'm, I, I'm, I'm well aware there is no certainty, even when I'm acting like there is. Uh, having lived with that. No, it's
2: funny. I I have thought about this. Um, So I'm sheltering in place down on the Monterey Peninsula with my son. And this is my childhood home. And as soon as I got here, I went to the store. There were no vegetables in the store. I went back to the house and left out packets of seeds for the vegetables she was going to plant this spring. And so I immediately went out and planted vegetables. And she was very big on always making sure that she planted vegetables, partly um, because she found gardening therapeutic and pleasurable, um, also because it made sense to her that one should be able to produce one. These things look so much, like they have so much more wisdom to them than they did when I was a child, <laughs> and I joked to friends i said well i- I don't have to worry about running out of toilet paper because the you know I have found lots and lots of toilet paper everywhere because it was purchased months ago uh, an attitude toward living that she had as a result of growing up being born during the war and, and then and growing up after the war that that was wisdom, and I remember her teaching me things like yeah, how to bone a chicken and then make chicken broth. And then she would say to me, you know, this is wisdom. This is not wisdom. You know, <laughs> this is. <laughs> She'd literally She'd say chicken. that. She literally say to me, this is wisdom or, or how to sew on a button or any of the millions of little life. We call them life hacks now, but she taught me. And and, and in fact, she was right. It's the expression of, of a deep wisdom of how to live when these very modern systems that we've become dependent upon fall apart. And, and one is self, one really has only oneself to rely upon. um, uh, Is in fact, a form of wisdom and, and knowing that that day to day actually we're always living with uncertainty. Right. Absolutely. Um, Yeah.
1: But something, you know, something about uh, reading in your book, the way that, um, even down to each individual field, having to calculate, is it ready or not? And if it's not ready, you're just hanging around for a few days, you know, just uh, in every aspect, having to listen to something that you're not in control of and live in accordance. with Something else is
2: definitely even in control. Yes. And that's very, it was, it's very interesting to watch because it's all men in the book. Who are working in this way? Which is not to say that they're all easy with the loss of control, because there are stretches in the book where it rains and hails and the crops are destroyed, and and there's nothing to do, and that's very hard on everybody's spirits. Um, but they're all very conscious of this process of needing to seed control to nature, um, and they're also very conscious of the joy that comes from working hard physically and being productive. Um, so you know, all that is just to sort of tie this back to an earlier point you made all of this is very not like how you live in the city.
1: (laughs) In general, maybe a little more similar. Right. right Yeah. Yeah. I noticed as weeks went by at first. It was like, how am I going to get my organic vegetables? And then how am I, you know, (laughs) but, but as time's gone by, um, there's a relaxing kind of, uh, my daughter sent me, she has three children. She sent me a, uh, an article yesterday, uh about um the new paradigm of parenting you know for instance like throw out all that way you parented a month ago you can't do that you know right right um
2: so it's it's uh, it was funny my son so a number of the a number of the guys on the crew uh, they're all from from pennsylvania they're all conservative christians many of them are mennonite some only make it as far as eight of as uh, them were homeschooled. Really nobody goes to college. There's one person in the book who is going to junior college, and then the, the other main character in the book, whose name is Justin, um, who really is a, a good friend, uh, also has gone to a four-year college. But... Um, <laughs> come to visit me and he would see and he loved word he would say can I be homeschooled can we live in there and can I just be homeschooled because he knew there was this other way he got living. his wish and now. so when we started nice <laughs> yeah, so we started shopping in place and now oh, you've got your wish you're, you're being homeschooled by I'm very happy but but that again like, you know the quote-unquote societal norm is to send our children to school and to be part of these institutions that socialize children and yes. so they, you know, grow up. Um, and then there are there's always a segment of society where children are being homeschooled, not just in Christian oh, circles, sure. but in you know other right. other communities some of as well. my some of my cousins' kids. Were, there's wisdom. There's wisdom there.
1: I want to come back and talk about Christianity. But we got to go to a break now.
2: Okay.
1: <laughs> so okay. There's, you, can, you can find links to my website, social media, on the Good Grief uh, page at Voice America. You can also find a link to my novel, An Ocean Between Them, uh, to find out where to get a hold of that. And to find Marie Matsuki Mockett, you can go to mariemockett.com. Be back soon.
0: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
1: Healthcare has been a major part of news stories today with one thing that has been consistent
0: Over 20 million people in America struggle with substance use. This impacts both the people who are using and loved ones who are trying to help. Still, there is hope. Tune in to the Beyond Addiction Show with host Josh King. You'll hear from experts and get the real information you need to understand and assist in change. Change can be hard. It doesn't have to be confusing. Tune in every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Health and Wellness. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief.
1: Welcome back to Good Grief. I'm here with Marie Mutsuki Make talking about her. Her book, American Harvest. And um, before the break, Marie, I said I wanted to talk with you about Christianity. And um, I was thinking about my relationship to Christianity the entire time I was reading the book, because there was such a diversity. You know, there's one thing that isn't true of me, that is true of a lot of city dwellers, is imagining Christianity as all one thing. Uh, mm because my father was a minister and he was also a civil rights worker that's how his religion expressed itself and um he was a very very
2: important uh, piece of u.s history
1: yeah he very very radical person in general was extremely sec. um did a lot of educational work and support work in the church around lgbtq issues once i came out he really um figured that out deeply, m- both my parents, you know. Mm-hmm. So for me, um, every time someone says Christian about somebody, I'm thinking in my head, but I don't usually say it out loud, what kind of Christian? And uh, mm-hmm. it was interesting in your book, uh, I-, I don't know that I not jotted down the phrase, but it was um, Jesus people. Uh, yes. Uh, people who actually want to embody um the personality of jesus or the the um values that jesus had right. they the, want to be the jesus
2: person, <laughs> the right? person for whom the, the entire religious you know movement was actually named <laughs> that-
1: <laughs> yes and, right and, and, right yes yeah. and um uh, it remind. I've spent a lot of time with Stephen Levine. He's, he's not alive anymore, but um, he was an incredible um, grief healer and an end-of-life person. And he would say, don't be a Christian, be Christ. Don't be a Buddhist, be Buddha. You know, he was always, he'd go into many. Um, and it was interesting that, that, that there was that divide on this crew you were with, I felt, And it came down to something about empathy, or I'm not sure, but um, maybe you have thoughts.
2: I well, I you know when I started so very early on, and this happens in the book. I was I was in the I was in the car with Justin, and he too said, you know, I'm really worried that my people are going to screw up this one, and I what well because I didn't know what he. And I, in the book I say, do you mean white people and he looks at me and he says no, I mean evangelical Christians. Um and I have this sort of horrible moment of thinking is that is that who I'm with because I didn't know that. And and I say are you sure you're an evangelical Christian and he sits and thinks you know like recalculating and he says yeah or sure. technically yes that are um so, I realized I really didn't know what evangelical Christianity is. I've read a lot of you know, news reports um, that talk about the habits of evangelical Christians, and I've read a couple of books which discuss the voting habits and the rise of evangelical Christianity as a political force in America. None of that explained what Christianity is as a lived experience or as a lived experience faith. And having spent so much time in the cities, uh, many of the people I know are very skeptical of Christianity and, and of religion and really don't see a difference between <clears throat> religion and superstition, um, and dismiss the whole thing. Uh, but I really I really means to be a practicing Christian and what that means to people. And it means something somewhere with, that has some redeeming value, otherwise it wouldn't be so important. Uh, but I didn't have any guarantee that when I went on the road with the Harvesters, that that would reveal itself. And, uh, it, you know, it took a while. We went to a few churches, and I would leave church. And I can't even remember what happened. You know, I was more fascinated the decor or whatever, the music or or something. Um, but then I did start to realize the first time this happened, there was a, a pastor and a who gave a sermon that I absolutely loved. Um, and I realized that it was centered around, uh, you know, appealing to our hearts, appealing to our compassion, and how to be practiced in the world. And Justin, in the book, uh, had thought of becoming a pastor. Uh, had a crisis of faith. I spent a lot of time trying to figure out what his crisis was and then talking to me about it. And it's a crisis that I've since realized. Uh, a few young Christians go through now, and there are older Christians who've gone through this too, where there are aspects of the church, i.e. The, you know, the bureaucracy that people are asked to follow. that don't really have anything to do with what Christ talk, the things I understand, which Eric and Justin had told me it, from the beginning, but, and I didn't understand the importance of what they told me was that they tried very hard to look at what Jesus said. So mm-hmm. you can go to a church where people spend a lot of time reading, for example, this. And this is reading the Acts, which happens after the Gospels, and is written and talks about. And there's a lot of discussion about Acts, but Acts was not, um, was not in not the teaching of Jesus, and so there's a really big difference between people who focus really specifically on what Jesus had to say. And people who focus on the other stuff, you know, because it's in the other yes. stuff that you can start to find ways to set people or control, etc. Jesus is really pretty clear. I I thought of the four gospels as sort of these historical texts. I had always read them as the foundations for literature. That's how they're cut in the great book course. Um they're actually I now find them to be absolutely extraordinary documents because here's this guy, Jesus, who does these things like you know caring for the poor and getting mad at the rich and when he's asked how do you get into heaven he says you you care for the poor um and he's very human he gets he has a whole range of human emotions he gets mad he gets sad so he's not this sort of detached perfect being he's very human and healing but he does for healing people and bringing people together and and ultimately for reconciliation. And I did not understand that this would have been revolutionary at the time, and quite frankly it's revolutionary now. Right? Absolutely. And so the goal that I'm describing, that how do we become loving every versus maybe a Christian in name only um, in an institution that perhaps employs to get to, to keep me in line, historically, it's a really old struggle. Uh, and I didn't Indeed. realize the importance of that, and how we still live with that. Um, you mentioned your father, and you mentioned uh, his work in the Civil Rights Movement. I mean, I think even today, I think we somehow discount the role that really passionate Christians played in first in abolition and um, the Civil Rights Movement in the 60s. I mean, these were really, it was a, it was a significant contribution. To the trajectory of the history of this country, but it's something that we don't necessarily think about because it's so <laughs> there's, You know the, the notion of Christianity is so loaded um, So I got a much deeper understanding of this than I had ever had before most of my upbringing was Was really Buddhist and spending time in Japan um, other than that? we did not go to church and, and so it was an extraordinary gift and it's, I almost feel like it's, it's given me a language when I meet somebody who is a devout Christian in the sense that they really try hard to follow Christ. Mm. Um, I really, it, I feel like I'm able to have conversations that I could not have had before about the importance of that, of that work, of his work, really
1: yeah, I've had a real uh, evolution over the years about that, which I was thinking of a lot uh, as I was reading the book because I came sort of I became sort of Jesus allergic for a long time.
0: Mm.
1: Um, <laughs> you know, and then I, I really loved this this interfaith gospel choir and I wanted to join. and my wife said to me, you know you're gonna have to get over that Jesus thing.. Uh, <laughs> <if you're> gonna... <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> and now it's vanished. Um, I'm more ecumenical. I wouldn't call myself a Christian, but I would say that um, there are teachings in that tradition that mean a lot to me, and I've been able to reclaim. Oh,
2: absolutely, uh, so they're really very powerful teachings, and so I I understand why some want to try to control the messes, but jesus the guy (laughs) jesus the guy let's stick with that (laughs) yeah it's ironic
1: to me when people quote the the old testament as um you know reasons for instance to be against homosexuality or whatever it might be and i'm like well like didn't jesus come to kind of change that equation like why are right? We- and
2: it's very clear. Yeah, That's, it's very clear. He says that this is the new law. Those laws yeah. are. Those are. You know, he's overriding all of that.
1: Right. Um, yeah. Oh, Marie. There's so much more we could talk about, but I don't want to uh, go away without um, just mentioning one thing that meant so much to me, which is the um, consideration of what makes home, um, because, you know, we're all. Um, So, most of us came from somewhere else, and you have a particular experience because one of your parents came from somewhere else, you know, in her lifetime, not in generations back. Um, And then the people that were here for Millennium got moved, right? So um, that idea of what makes home really stood out in the book. And I didn't want to get away without saying that had a lot of meaning for me.
2: Um, Thank you. I'm glad it did. I still struggle with what home is. (laughs)
1: Yes, (laughs) indeed.
2: What my sense of home is. I have a a pat and simple answer. Um, You know, I don't know I don't know how to and I don't know how I'm not a politician or a funded I don't have that kind of mind so it's really hard for me to envision how do we make a home so everyone has a home and feels they have a home and is happy with their home
1: Um, there's a there's a little quote from your book that captures just a little bit of you know how you talk about it. it it's this. When I see these things, I'm filled with joy and longing for the secluded comfort of being with my parents who loved me. Perhaps going home is the same thing as the search for shalom, for the way things are supposed to be.
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, quite beautiful. And it, it you don't have to quite nail it down to have that sense of, I know the feeling of home. But then I also, well, and this know is the one feeling of the things, of, so of non-home.
2: A, right. This is the, a Mennonite pastor, um, wonderful uh, uh, gentleman in Oklahoma. I loved his church. Uh, and he introduces me to the idea of shalom as it is understood within, within, certainly within this group, this denomination of Christianity. Mm. And I had all these sort of. Sh- as being peace or hello, or you know, they taught us a shalom song when I was in grade school, and uh-huh. I had never heard of this idea of shalom being the way things are supposed to be. And it's so interesting because um, he he was saying we we can't necessarily. He he was saying we all have a sense of that. We all know that mm. things are not the way they're supposed to be, and that. You know, we're going to have, have to end Justin, it there. I
1: talked to, about. We're going to have to end it there, but that's a good place to end because we're all after that, aren't we? The feeling that there is some way to feel in sync, you know, right? To, to feel at peace, to feel present. I I really want to thank you for being here. I I could talk to you for hours, and I hope people will read what the my book. My
2: time just flew by. Thank you so uh, much. It just flew it by, indeed. Thank you so
1: much. Uh, Next week, I'll have Lynn Castile Harper to talk about her book On Vanishing, Mortality, Dementia, and What It Means to Disappear. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation.